When people think of what it takes to get a new drug approved, they likely think of the various trials a drug has to be run through, then the production and marketing of a drug once it's ready for release. What they might not consider fully is the scope and impact of statistics in the production and manufacturing of drugs in the pharmaceutical industry. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Stephen Ruberg. Ruberg was involved in the drug industry for almost 40 years, working in all phases of development and marketing. In his last 10 years at Eli Lilly, he formed the Advanced Analytics Hub, for which he was the scientific leader and eventually distinguished research fellow. He now runs Analytics Thinking, which he founded to promote good statistical principles and to help organizations come up with analytical strategies. Steve, thank you so much for being here today. Rosemary, it's a real pleasure for being here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. So I guess my first question for you is uh, just how did you get involved in and I guess, you know, as, as, as a statistician in the manufacturing and sort of of drugs? Yeah, so I, I didn't know I wanted to do this. Uh, I actually went to Miami University to get a master's degree in statistics. Oh, um, yeah, baby. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, let, me take, let me take that back. I actually went to Miami University to get a master's degree in mathematics. But when some astute professors noted that I might be more interested or appeared to be more interested in applied mathematics, they suggested um, taking some courses in statistics, which I loved and transfer or, or converted to a master's degree in statistics, which I got. And I was just totally captivated um, by the whole field of statistics and applying quantitative thinking to real world problems. And um, I went on to get a PhD in biostatistics. Um, and I went to work for a small pharmaceutical company in Cincinnati, Ohio, because that's the job offer I got. And <laughs> it was interesting. And I thought it was good. I like biology. You know, I got this PhD in biostatistics from the University of Cincinnati. So I was hanging around the medical school and doing stuff related to that. So it was kind of a natural transition. But I can tell you, it didn't take too long for me to realize or to feel that I was part of a noble cause, um, that I was using my quantitative skills to help scientists and physicians figure out how to cure disease or how to relieve symptoms or how to improve quality of life. And um, that felt very good and rewarding and enriching to me. And over the course of my 38, 39 years now, hanging around the pharmaceutical industry, um, I'm very proud of the contributions that I've made. And I've seen many statisticians uh, playing a very impactful role in bringing new drugs to the market that help cure or ameliorate disease. So um, that's that's what kept me engaged and, and really totally motivated to, to press on uh, in the field of statistics and drug development. So were there particular diseases or concerns that you focused on in your early work or that, that really led you to this thought, this, this realization that you were part of this noble cause as you describe it? Um, you know, I think, um, I just saw the pharma company that I worked for, which merged with some others and kind of grew into a really big pharma company. 
Um, I just saw people in all different aspects working on this. I, I spent some early years in research and I was so thoroughly impressed with the, the depth of knowledge that these people had about cellular mechanisms of the human body um, and how passionate they were about trying to tear apart a cell and figure out you know, what, what's going wrong in this cell? Um, what proteins have, have been misformed or aren't being produced so that the cell can operate in a reasonable way? And I saw the same things with clinicians who were trying to figure out what's the right dose for these patients or what are the right patient characteristics for this drug um, that, that might be best for a person uh, to take this drug, et cetera. And, and so kind of everywhere I looked, I saw people passionate, committed, really smart, um, and and had invested you know their entire lives and careers into into this scientific enterprise or maybe even one specific niche. The beauty for me as a statistician is data is everywhere, and I got to play as as some folks have said as a statistician. I got to play in a lot of people's sandboxes, and so I got to learn a lot of biology and chemistry and medicine and. That satisfied my inherent need for, of curiosity to learn more. And um, I, I just really enjoyed learning more statistics, learning more methods, doing research on more statistical methods or algorithms or approaches, while also learning more about these other scientific disciplines and how I could be part of the team that would bring a new drug to the market. So, so John, the beauty of, uh, to, to answer your question is, no, I felt as a statistician, I wasn't pigeonholed into one area. I worked in allergy and oncology, diabetes, neuroscience, Alzheimer's disease, and cardiovascular disease, and on and on and on. So it's been a really fun uh, and exciting way to uh, to apply my, my inherent interest in quantitative things. Very good. Steve, this is Richard. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, as a statistician, when you work for Eli Lilly, what were some of your biggest challenges? What does a statistician have to do to explain what it is that you do to get people to sort of understand uh, data and, and the numbers that you work with? Good question. So um, in some respects, because regulatory agencies like the Food and Drug Administration, and you can imagine there's international counterparts in Europe and Japan and China and other places in the world, uh, because they require clinical trials that are adequately designed and sufficient sample size and analyzed appropriately, et cetera, um, statisticians are, a, are viewed as a necessary and important part of clinical development. But even then, I would say one of the hardest problems, maybe the hardest problem that human beings face is inference. That is, we observe things in the natural world and we try to infer what is the true natural phenomenon that's going on behind that. That is, we observe patients have certain responses to a drug and we try to infer, does this drug really work or not? Or am I just seeing some random chance or spurious favorable outcomes in a few patients or whatnot? Mm -hmm. So I think that inference is a very difficult thing conceptually. Um, and I think that's probably the hardest thing to communicate to others who aren't trained in statistics. And I guess I'd even say it's even it's hard for me who spent have a lifelong career in statistics. Um, 
to try to figure out what is true based on this limited view of mother nature that I have, <laughs> um, whether it's 100 patients in this clinical trial or one experiment done in rats in this laboratory, what what general inferences can I make? And um, it's, it's a very difficult problem. We have all have human biases. There's random variation in nature. Um, there's assumptions that go into our analyses and models. And so trying, trying to pull that all together uh, in a way that you can help scientists understand, I'm here to help, mm. but because statisticians deal with uncertainty and variability and probability, I may not give you a yes or no answer that you're looking for. I may say something like, well, the probability that this drug at this dose works in these patients is maybe 67%. Mm, do we want to do more research on this or do we want to call it quits? Well, that's involves a bunch of other business decisions, et cetera. But that's, I think, the hardest thing to communicate is this notion of inference and the inherent uncertainty mm -hmm. that comes with it and that we deal in probabilities and not certainty. So, mm -hmm. so that's what's kind of, that's where I think scientists and clinicians who understand and appreciate statistics to a certain level enjoyed working with me and other statisticians because they said, you guys think differently than the rest of us, and we need that different kind of thinking. Um, but boy, it's hard to think like you guys. Are we? Couldn't you just tell me yes or no? <laughs> and, yes. and it's like, golly, I wish the world were as easy as black and white and yes and no. But you know, we don't deal with zeros and ones. We deal on the continuum from zero to one in terms of probabilities. So, so Steve, you mentioned the idea of, of clinical trials. I was, was wondering if you could just sketch out the workflow from the discovery of a promising compound to the investigation of that compound to finally marketing some, marketing this, this pharmaceutical compound. Yeah, I'll give you a general overview, but I hope along the way I can give you a couple specific statistical stories that I think are very fascinating and compelling um, about the value of statistics in drug development. So basically, uh, in, in the research arena, um, scientists are looking for what, what, uh, what are known as targets for disease. So a patient has, say, Alzheimer's disease. And we're trying to figure out, the scientists are trying to figure out what is it that's going on in the human brain that has gone awry um, so that a person has cognitive decline and functional decline. And so they're looking at the neurons in the brain, the synapses in the brain, all these kinds of things to say, what, what's gone wrong? And if you can identify what's gone wrong, that's called a target. We say, we think this is what's going wrong in this cell. That's our target. We have to repair that or change that or regulate it with something along the way. The next step then is to design a molecule that interferes with that target in the way you like. So let's say that target is something to do with production of a protein and, and your cells aren't producing enough of that protein or they're producing too much of that protein. The scientific community says, let's find a molecule or an antibody or something that'll go in and stop the overproduction of that protein or will enhance the production of that protein, whatever the case may be. And that's called a lead compound. Generally, there are a number of lead compounds that are generated uh, because biology is very complex and it's not always sure which one might be best. You then proceed into testing those things in animals, in animal models to see if they actually do what you think they should do. And if they're tested in animals and they seem to be 
let's say, producing more of this protein in the rat brain, you know, or the dog brain, and you think that's relevant to humans. Then you go on and do safety testing in animals, so-called toxicology work, to make sure that this thing, to all intents and purposes, looks like it's safe. So years of toxicology researching to make sure that, gee, this thing doesn't really do anything bad in animals. So therefore, we think it's now safe to take in humans. And so the first trials in humans that are done are safety trials, very small numbers of people, six, eight people get a single dose of the drug and they're watched for a week or two to make sure nothing goes haywire or that you know the drug is safe. And you gradually increase doses in subsequent cohorts of patients. And once you determine it's safe and you say, gee, it's safe up to 200 milligrams a day, then you begin efficacy testing in what's called phase two trials where you start to treat people with the disease, say Alzheimer's disease, and you might try 25, 50, 100, and 200 milligrams of the drug. And you might study it for six months or a year or some period of time. And you do all that testing to say, does the drug look like it's really having an effect? And if it looks like it's having a positive effect and it looks like it's still safe, these trials tend to be hundreds of patients for longer periods of time, then you go to phase three confirmatory trials where you say, all right, we're going to do a very large long-term trial. We've picked the dose that works. We know the kind of patients we want to enroll in our trial. And you do this very expensive, very long-term international clinical trial, usually involves dozens of countries, hundreds of doctors and investigators from around the world. And at the end of that trial, you conclude whether you've generated in regulatory language, they say substantial evidence of efficacy and safety of this drug as it's intended to be used in the patient population for Alzheimer's disease, et cetera. Then you submit it to a regulatory agency or you submit it to multiple regulatory agencies around the world. You submit all your data, your preclinical data, your tox data, your clinical trial data, and they review all that stuff and they essentially come back and say, yes, it's approved for marketing or no, it's not. If it's approved for marketing, the company has in the background been drumming up or investing lots of money to build manufacturing facilities to produce this. So there's a lot of upfront investment. And when they get the approval, they manufacture the drug and then they put the sales force out to start informing doctors around the country, around the world. Here's our new drug. Here's how it's used. Here's the doses. Here's the patients, et cetera. You're listening to Stats and Stories. And today we're talking statistics and pharmaceuticals with Steven Ruberg of Analytics Thinking. Steve, that was a great summary. That, that was a, a really, really nicely done. So, so, uh, so it's complicated, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the thing that always is striking to me when thinking about this is just the, the, the pyramid that's, that you have here of, of starting with the, of so many, many potential, um, potential uh, lead compounds and then ultimately what ends up coming to market. So, so two questions. One is, you know, what what fraction of these lead compounds ultimately make it to market, make it to approval and then to market? And, and what's, what's probably the cost of bringing something from, from promising lead compound to, to market, um, market pharmaceutical? Yeah, so um, from the lead compound area, I would say uh, the numbers I've seen have been anywhere from one in 1,000 to one in 10,000 lead compounds actually make it all the way to the market as a drug. 
the process for discerning all that and actually getting finding that one compound and doing all this and getting it to the market, um, you know, average numbers can range anywhere uh, on the on the low side, maybe eight or nine years up to 12 or 13 years. And the costs can be uh, as much as two and a half to three billion dollars of investment um, to make that all happen. Now, of course, there's exceptions uh, where scientific world is advancing rapidly and there's been some breakthrough therapies that have been accelerated for rare diseases um, and gene therapies that have, have gotten through the process in a shorter period of time, maybe five or six years, maybe with as, as, as little as a $1 billion investment, but still the time scales and the dollar amounts are quite considerable. So one of the ways the general public learns about this very complicated process is through journalism. So, and they often, you know, the kind of process you described is uh, complicated. And what journalists usually focus on is the sort of more dramatic parts of it. And if you could talk a little bit about what journalists probably could do better, uh, because I'm thinking the general public today probably thinks when they think big pharma, they think opioid crisis and all of those stories that have come out in, in recent years. And uh, you're reading the newspaper stories on your work, on the work that, that's going on. What do you think the general public needs to know that they're not getting from journalists on a daily basis? Yeah, it's interesting, very interesting question, because I just heard an interview this morning listening to National Public Radio of a person, drug pricing, right, is a very big issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, this person said, you know, it, it, it costs a trivial amount of money to manufacture such and such a pill, you know, and yet a pharmaceutical company will charge $500 for, say, a month's supply of 60 pills, where you maybe take this pill twice a day or something like that. And it literally only costs him three or four or five or six cents to make that pill, one pill. Um, you know, and they say, that's outrageous, that's crazy. You know, the, the pricing markup and they're gouging the public. Well without getting into all the details of the nuances of pricing and all that kind of stuff and the complexities, you know, I think what the public needs to know is you're not paying for the manufacturing of that pill. You're paying for the 10 or 12 years of research mm -hmm. that went into that pill. There's a lot of knowledge and intelligence into how that chemical is constructed in that pill and how the safety of it was documented and et cetera, et cetera, and the effectiveness. And so what you're really paying for when you buy a bottle of that medication is, you know, the billions of dollars and the, you know, decade of research and all the really smart, intelligent people who worked very, very hard to bring that deep expertise to bear in terms of a medicine that helps you with your disease. And so I think that's, that's, that's kind of one of the things that I see it played out once in a while but it's frequently dismissed by people. Yeah, 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 it's expensive to develop a drug yeah. and all that kind of stuff, but I still want it for a dollar a day, mm -hmm. um, you know, to treat this very complicated disease called diabetes or breast cancer or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think, I think people hear that, but it's still, there's still an emotional aspect to it that what I just gave you is a very intellectual argument. Mm -hmm. The emotional argument is, man, 
I'm struggling to make ends meet in my family, and now I got to pay uh, a lot of money for my drug. So in, in one of your roles when you when you were working in the industry, you were in charge of all things analytical at a large pharmaceutical company. And that, that clearly s spans the scope of, of the clinical trials and the preclinical research that you described to us earlier. Can you talk about some of the other areas where, where statistical insights or, or kind of careful study was required for everything from the, the manufacturing to marketing to post-market surveillance, all the other things that might have been within the scope of practice of your office. Yeah, John, I'm going to give you, a, you mentioned manufacturing. So I'm going to give you a, a manufacturing story here very quickly. So some drugs are dosed based on body weight. All right, these are injectable drugs, especially in the oncology and cancer treatment areas. And so everyone gets a different dose depending on how much you weigh. The question is, well, how do you do that? Well, what we do is we make vials of uh, of the solution of the drug, say a 10 milligram vial. So here's a small vial with some fluid and it's got 10 milligrams of the drug in it. So let's say a small person needs to get this drug. Say they only need four milligrams. What happens is you extract the four milligrams for this vial. And then since you've punctured the seal, um, the six milligrams cannot be used again um, because of all sorts of concerns about sterility and everything else. And so six milligrams gets wasted. Let's say a larger person needs 11 milligrams. Well, then what they'll have to do is take two vials. They'll get 10 milligrams out of one vial and only one milligram out of the next vial and nine milligram is unused from mm -hmm. the second vial. Now, oncology drugs are very expensive. And in fact, the excess has to be destroyed usually through special means to inactivate them. So that's expensive. Mm -hmm. So traditionally to reduce waste, a company might create a smaller vial and say, let's, let's, let's use a five milligram vial. That'll help us reduce waste. But if a patient needs six milligrams, they get one five milligram vial and the second five milligram vial, they only get one milligram. There's still four milligrams of waste. So the question is, is what is the optimal set of vial dosage strengths that you can use to minimize waste while also minimizing the number of dosage vials and minimizing the number of vials used for any given patient, right? You can't just say, well, let's make one milligram vials and then a person who needs 13 milligrams just gets 13 vials. In a hospital, in a pharmacy, in a practical setting, that'll never work. Usually there's a constraint of a maximum of four vials per patient. Yeah. So anyway, so suppose you have a drug that has to cover a dose range of two milligrams to 15 milligrams. That's kind of people's normal body weights from the smallest female maybe to the largest male gets to, all right, well, with a little bit of thought, you can probably understand that 10 milligrams and five milligrams are very bad choices because that combination um, are multiples of each other. And in fact, if you go through a formal optimization process, you can find that actually a three milligram vial and a four milligram vial works best because they can cover almost any of those doses with virtually no waste whatsoever. Oh, that's cool. So if you mm -hmm. need... If you need two milligrams, you get a three milligram vial, one milligram waste, but a three milligram dose or a four milligram dose. And as you work your way up through, you can see that combinations of three and four milligrams gives you no waste. It's yeah. less than four vials per patient, et cetera. That's an example where some folks in my group came in and said, hey, why are we doing all these dosages in, opt in, in multiples of each other? And we went through a formal mathematical optimization process 
the objective function to minimize waste. Constraints, there's also manufacturing constraints, so we had to build in certain other aspects to this, but we did an optimization across all of this, and Lily started producing vials that had these really odd dosage numbers, you know, <laughs> like a seven milligram vial and a, and a 23 milligram vial, wow. you know, stuff like that. And it reduced waste considerably. The bottom line is one of our manufacturing people told us that over the course of the five to 10 years that this drug would be on the market, the amount of waste we minimized would probably accumulate to somewhere in the vicinity of 200 to 300 million dollars. Holy wow. cow. Wow. Right? Wow. So, so I can tell you that story caught the attention of our CEO. <laughs> yes. Gee, what a and, surprise. <laughs> and, and some others in the company said, we want the statisticians involved anytime we're developing a new drug that's an injectable where we have these options of different vial dosage strengths. We want the statisticians in the conversation and helping us do truly a mathematical optimization that minimizes waste. For all parties involved, lower mm -hmm. cost for us, lower cost for the patient, lower waste for the hospital that has to be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Everybody wins. Very it's a great example of not just statistical thinking, but quantitative thinking. Steve, I, I was interested in, um, you know, you talked about how long the process is of drugs going, getting to market and helping. And I know Lilly was one of the very few companies that was involved in non-opioid pain medication studies. And I wondered if you had any, were doing any of that at Lilly, and you know where that research stands today, the, the non-opioid pain medications. Um. Yes, uh, it, it's a it's an important research area given the opioid crisis. And yes, I I was still at Lilly when some of that research was going on. Um, and to be honest, I've actually done some in my retired state. I've done some consulting mm -hmm. with Lilly, who has a joint venture with Pfizer. Right. Um, but I can't give you any of the inside story. No. <laughs> other than I thought I'd try a future yeah. a future episode, Steve. Yeah, it's. I can only tell you what's in the public domain as they've progressed on some trials. Some trials have shown some success in some pain areas. Um, you know, they're studying low back pain, knee pain, post-surgical pain, you know, some of these other areas. There's been some successes and there's been some not as much success or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So the jury, I think, is still out and people are still trying to figure out what is it about this new mechanisms of action of new molecules besides um, using opioids that could help manage pain. But I'll tell you, if a company can unlock that key, yeah. it's, it's a, it would be an important addition to the medical armamentarium mm -hmm. of treating pain. Well, Steve, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you for so much for being here today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed the chat. And uh, um, keep up the great work with doing Stats and Stories. I find them interesting and invaluable. Well, thank Thanks. you so Thanks, much. Steve. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.